Hello all, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're watching or listening to this podcast, and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu, and today we're going to be talking about Empusas and Lamias, um, and maybe a little bit of other female monsters. I'm going to see how much time we have. Um, if you're new to this podcast, you can find me anywhere across uh, social media, uh, using the ter- the tag Artemis Expert. And if you're really new to this podcast, you may also want to purchase my book called She Who Hunts uh, on Artemis. It's my first book on Artemis. I'm working on a second book on her. And uh, you can find this anywhere, Amazon or anywhere that um, that you purchase your books. I'm very excited to share it with you guys. I'm very sh- excited to talk about it. Artemis has been my obsession for well, over a decade, almost 15 years now, um, perhaps one day I'll do a podcast on how, how I fell in love with her and how she changed my life. So, uh, but for now, just know that she is my obsession and that I have a ton of things to say about her. And I'm just starting slowly one book at a time. So today we're going to talk about female monsters. I'm very excited. And I just want to plug, nobody asked me to, but I'm loving this book. If you haven't purchased it, or if you're into female monsters, women and other monsters by Jess Zimmerman, I bought it. I actually arrived yesterday. So I had finished my notes on this particular podcast, but then I started reading it last night and I couldn't put it down. I'm halfway through and I'll probably finish it today. It's so great. My favorite thing about this book is that, and it's what I would like to do, although I've been so entrenched in academia, I find it a bit difficult to put the two together, is to embed your own personal experience with the goddess, with the divine, with, you know, the experiences of women, of course, um, with your, in your own book. And so I try to do that a little bit. Uh, I guess one of my things is that I focus a lot on, on my research collection and I do, I do a lot of research and I do a lot of traveling and I do want to talk about all of the things again, because I come from a very strict academic background. I find it, I was not allowed to put in any of my personal experiences, of course, in my dissertation or in other papers that I published. And so now I'm slowly starting to plug plug in my experiences, in particular with Artemis, but also with the goddess. Um, If you are interested in books, actually, I am organizing a book club. It's called Goddess Reads. It's on Facebook. I know some of you are like, what is Facebook? But it's, uh, it's one of the places where we can have a group and have conversations and do polls and all these kind of fun things. So if you're into book, uh, into reading goddess books or nonfiction books about the goddess, I'm starting that. And there's a lot of information about that under the goddess reads on Facebook. So that those are the, that's the book I'm working on. I'm working on a couple other books. I'm one of those people that likes to read three, four books at the same time. And actually we're going to talk about uh, the Inpusa in one of my favorite uh, fiction books. Uh, at the end of this podcast, when we look at modern interpretations. So thank you for joining me today. So we're going to start by looking at first, I think we're going to start with the Enpusa, and then we're going to move on to Lamia's. And like I said, if we have a little bit of time, we can also look at the Strigas because the Strigas are my favorite in a way because they come from my own Eastern European background. And I think they're often underrated. Now, I should preface this podcast by saying that I use—I well, I used to teach and I even put together a course on vampires uh, many years ago, many years ago now. Oh, well, many, six, seven years ago now. Um, I used to teach it at Humber College and it was a course. I can't remember what it was called. Oh, it was called Vampires in Film. So some of my students, if you're listening to this, you might have been in that course And the reason why I initially put it together was because I come from Romania and I have a historical knowledge, which they taught us very young, of the kings of Romania and, of course, Transylvania. And I'm always irked, especially after Twilight came out. Don't hit me, Twilight fans. But after, and I read all the books. So, you know, (laughs) I'm with you there. But after Twilight came out, there was such an upsurgence of 
interest in vampires and I was a bit irked with the way that, first of all, Bram Stoker stole our culture and appropriated our culture and created Dracula. And although now I suppose Romanians are making money off of tourists who go to Transylvania or to Castle Bran, which is really wonderful. So eh, double-edged sword there. So, um, but I really, so I wanted to talk about the history of vampires because the history of vampires is actually significant on a social conscious communal level, religious level. And it's not just, you know, glamorous vampires or sparkling vampires or even, you know, aggressive vampires like underworld. I mean, I love the underworld series the first and second, the rest, I'm not so sure. I've watched pretty much every vampire movie or werewolf movie that there is out there. And, and I love fantasy fiction. So the genre is wonderful, but I think that there is a symbolism that often gets overlooked. And so I think today when we look at Empusas and Lamias and women who devour or women who seduce to devour, and of course women as monsters, I think that there's a lot to be said for the symbolism and the sort of that collective unconscious that I always talk about that Jung refers to or that Jung trademarked. Um, when we talk about storytelling and how stories affect culture and of course how stories affect women so let's get i'm gonna there'll be a little bit of story time i hope you're ready for it i'm so excited to read you uh, at least one or two stories and because i again as an academic i love to give you primary source and also because i find that ancient writers you know didn't hold back in their vitriol for these female monsters and we really get to see firsthand the way they saw themselves and perhaps the way they saw and of course the way they saw women yeah all right so let's start with let's start with the impusa's origins okay uh, where does she come from or impusa so there's i will refer to one or to, to her or they or them because they are a bit of also a singular figure, but also a collective figure, if that makes sense. So it'll make sense, I guess, as we move forward. So Impusa is one of the names for demonic women who stalked the night looking for victims, particularly men. Okay. So again, just like we talked about with Medusa and just like we talk about with the Sphinx, I want you to consider that these monsters, I say that in quotation marks, are hunting men. <laughs> Perhaps this is why I titled my book, She Who Hunts, because there is some, there is a difference between hunting someone and looking for someone. And it's a, it's a fine line, but there is a little difference. Yeah. So they were often called empusai or empusai. They were associated with a subgroup of the Lamia, which we're going to talk about. And another, um, subgroup of creatures called the Mormal. The Mormal or the Mormalikei, they were more like ghosts. So we're not touching too much upon them, but they, um, and again, they overlap a little bit. So if it sounds like there's overlapping lines between all of these so-called female monsters or demons or ghosts, it's because that's the case. Yeah. So it's not you, it's definitely the case. So sometimes the Impusa was a specter, uh, like I said, she would devour human beings, particularly men. She could assume different forms. And in some stories, we're told that she was sent out by Hecate. Hecate was the queen of witches or the witch queen, however you want to uh, put it. I would love to do a podcast on Hecate very soon, although that will take that might actually take us a couple of podcasts, because, again, Hecate is one of these favorite uh, figures that is incredibly complex and potent with symbolism and meaning and all of these things. But uh, Empusai or Empusa was sent out by Hecate uh, to frighten travel travelers, excuse me, at least according to Aristophanes. Sometimes it was believed that they appear with one leg of brass and the other of an ass or a donkey. Yeah. So I'm going to show you a couple of those images. Uh, very, very interesting that there's so much, oh, sorry. <laughs> this is what happens when you have five thoughts at the same time. There's so much meaning 
when a female figure has an upper body that is mostly beautiful, naked, breasty, uh, you know, neoclassical European face and hair. And then the bottom half is snake, or in this case, you know, half brass is very machine-like mechanic, and half donkey is very wild. So just in that embodiment alone, if we break it down, this monster is a combination of femininity, machinery, and wilderness. So no wonder she's frightening. She's imposing. She's powerful and frightening, which I don't know if I've spoken enough, but certainly Jess Zimmerman has reminded me how much power there is in ugliness and how much power there is in being frightening. There is power in that. It's just that women have been taught for so long to be quiet, to not rock the boat, to not cause controversy, to not be loud. And so we don't really know, literally don't know what we don't know, which is the power that we have when we get loud. Yeah, that also reminds me of the JLo uh, Netflix special. Actually, sorry, I'm going to uh, I'm going to put in a little caveat here about the JLo Netflix special because it's something that is irking me. I watched the JLo Netflix special and I just have to tell you that I absolutely love JLo and I absolutely love all women that work for what they have. And recently I'm finding a trend in women bashing, first of all, women bashing other women and people bashing other women. So I watched the JLo special. I was very, very excited about this woman. You know, you don't have to like her music or anything about her, but this woman that worked hard to get to where she is. And uh, somehow, you know, I was scrolling through Facebook or other social media and people are just bashing, bashing, bashing her, even women bashing her. And I thought to myself, you know, what is going on? Why are we bashing? So in one, on the one hand, we're saying, yes, be empowered. Yes, speak up. Yes, use your voice. Yes, be sexy. Be whatever you want to be. Grow yourself, however you want to grow yourself. And then when someone like JLo comes on stage and she's beautiful and stunning and works hard and she is talented, she doesn't have to win, you know, who knows what, but she's talented. And women are like, oh my God, like, what does she have to worry about? Oh my God, like, she's so fake. Oh my God, if I had that money, I would, this pettiness that we've been taught to do to each other. And it's really starting to irk me to the point where I'm participating in debates uh, online, which I don't normally do because I, it's just, sometimes it's useless to have debates online, but I'm irked. Yeah. I'm really irked with us because we are supposed to be progressing past this pettiness. So what if JLo has money? So what if she likes herself? So what? Like, so what? Good for her. So I'm in the good for her camp. In fact, I might even hashtag that good for her because I'm tired of it. You know, I got into this whole thing about Madonna too a while back. Oh, Madonna wants to be, she changed her face. She changed this. She never wants to age. And, and my answer is like, so what? Why are we doing this? Anyways, I'm getting sidetracked and I apologize. My students know that because sometimes I go on these little rants, but I just want you to, I just want you to think a little bit about, sorry, I'm writing that down. I just want you to think a little bit about, you know, um, why are we doing this to ourselves? Why is it? And actually, sorry, my rant is not yet over. When I watched the Taylor Swift special, I can't remember the name of it, which I also love because Taylor Swift is also a powerful person who's made her own life. There was so much positivity about that particular Netflix special. And it was all about her as well. And it was all about her empowerment. And now that I think of it, everybody loved Taylor Swift. And is it like if we are reflecting within ourselves, is it because Taylor Swift is cute and blonde and white and tall and skinny and the embodiment of what we've been taught. Actually, this relates directly to my notes or, and because JLo is Latina and curvy and how dare does a woman of color speak up for herself and defend herself and want to be equal to others. I mean, you know, that's something we really must reflect on. And I've been thinking a lot about late about it lately. And I, yeah, it's irking me. So, so, um, since this is my platform, I get to talk about it. Yeah. What does Miley say? It's my mouth. I'll say what I want to. I love that line. I love that line. As a woman who grew up 
when Madonna was just coming on the scene and was totally bashed for everything she said and everything she did. And now, oh, that was iconic or feminist. I find that young women who are empowered in that way are really inspirational and I'm really proud of them. So anyways, moving on to the specter. I promised you monstrous women. I shall give them to you. So she's a, she was a woman who was half female, had one leg of brass and another of an ass, a creature. Okay. A creature or a, a demon. Yeah. I should also talk a little bit about the word daemon or demon as in Greek, a daemon is equivalent to a demigod and a demigod is neither necessarily good or bad. A demigod is just the intermediary or sometimes the offspring of a god and a human, but the intermediary between uh, humans and gods. And it's only later on with the church developing and Christianity sort of taking us into the dark ages that daemon began to be demon, demon, right? And then demons became suddenly all negative. And then demons became associated, associated with satanic uh, rituals and other sort of evil aspects of life. And hence, Empusa, who has clearly these two unnatural legs um, and unnatural body, unnatural, I say that in quotations, um, is part of the demons. And of course, her seduction and devouring of men doesn't help either. So most of the time, empusas um, were used to frighten travelers, like I said, frighten men, frighten other people. We are told in some stories that she could assume different forms, especially when she was sent out to by Hecate to frighten travelers. But this was most of the time her, prefer, her preferred form. Okay. And so the Empusas and the Lamai and all of these, all of these uh, creatures that we're talking about today were terrifying entities, yeah? terrifying entities. And sometimes she has said that instead of hair, she had a fire wreathing around her head. Okay. Again, this is the association that comes up later with redheads being associated with witches. So if you were a redhead in like, 11th to 15th, 16th century Europe, you may be burned at the stake quite easily because there was this association that your fire hair represented some type of demonic association or that your parents, your mother had sex with a demon and that's why you are redheaded or that you made a contract with the demon and that's why you're redheaded. So if you had red hair, um, you were in trouble. You were in danger, girl. Yeah. And uh, in fact, it continues to be an issue because gingers, as you know, I have some of my friends that are part of the ginger mafia, continue to have sort of a, there's a bias against gingers. And it's interesting. And it, the bias may not be that they're witches right now, but the bias is that they have a bad temper. And then the bias is also that they're unattractive in some way, which I find fascinating because I find gingers or redheads to be stunning. And their hair and their skin. Oh my God, stunning. So, but fascinating, right? This association that could be traced, you know, 4,000 years ago to something like an empusai who had fire hair to then later on the church associating redheads to uh, witches or devil worshipers. And then today, still that underlying bias um, against redheads or uh, gingers. So very interesting. So how their appearance connected them to the underworld or made them predators. Now, Lamia were also uh, specters that unleashed um, some damage into the world. So we're going to see how that happens. But I want to tell you first a story about Onesculus. And again, you know, my pronunciation tends to be Eastern European. Onesculus, the ass-legged maiden. Because as I was connecting Christianity with the Empusai and the traditions, there is this really interesting story that uh, is included in this spread of Christianity and Judaism. So according to Murdoch University's professor William Loder, these, these, these religions, as they developed, of course, established a, a moral ground, a, a higher moral ground for themselves, particularly when it, when it was uh, dealing with sexuality or morality. And what they thought is, of course, that the pagans of old, of the Greco-Roman world, were depraved barbarians. And so in the Testament of Solomon, in chapter four, 
Solomon asked the devil to show him a female demon. And he summoned, the devil summons one from the depths. She was breathtakingly beautiful, according to the text. But her true nature was evident in her legs. They were legs of a donkey. Okay. When asked who she was, she said, I am called Onesculus, who lurks in holes on earth. My ways are varied. Sometimes I choke a man. Sometimes I pervert them from their nature. So uh, what is the nature of man? Well, certainly according to monotheism, the nature of man is rational, strong, conservative, etc. And so here is this fantastical female beast or beastie that is uh, perverting them from their nature. So she seduces them basically and often kills them. Yeah, which is a lot of fun. Uh, Onesculus's origin story is told in Pseudo-Plutarch, and it's kind of dark. She is the daughter of a man named Aristonymus of Ephesus. Ah, Ephesus, my favorite place, who hated women so completely. So he was sort of an early incel that he refused to have anything to do with them and instead used the donkey to fulfill his carnal urges. So Anaskelis then was the result of that disturbing union. Again, fantastical story. Yeah. And would later, no man can procreate with a donkey, biologically, scientifically speaking. But anyways, she was the result of this disturbing union and would later be used to show just how barbaric and depraved believers in the old ways so the pagans were. Now, there's there's an echo here in Anaskelis, um, of the satyrs, right? So some of you might be familiar with the satyrs, which was the class of drunken woodland woodland gods. And in Greek art, they were represented as half man, half horse. They had horses, ears, and tails, sorry. Uh, But in Roman representation, they uh, they had goats, ears, tails, legs, and horns. So, and this also then, the symbolism of half man, half goat, half man, half horse, half man, half donkey, half man and half some kind of herd animal is the epitome of the depiction of the devil today. And that's not an accident, right? It's not an accident that the depiction of the devil became associated with these wild woodland creatures, the satyrs, and that everything that's demonic or unnatural, for example, like Onesculus, is a part of that conception. And the reason for that is, again, this idea of unnatural and wild at the same time, because what is wild cannot be controlled. And what is unnatural, and I keep saying that in quotation marks, if you're just listening to me and not watching, what is unnatural means that it is outside the realm of things that are made by God, because God makes nature. Therefore, if you are unnatural, you are not part of that creation, and therefore, You are outside the creation of God, which automatically makes you a monster or a beast. So there's a lot of implications as to why, why do we associate demonic, negative, satanic things with half bodies? Okay. So we talked about half female, half snake, and that has its own connotation, but half female or half person and half herd animal is even lower on the creatures or monsters list because herd animals or domestic animals are farm animals. Does that make sense? So they are something that are controlled property of sometimes dirty, messy, uncivilized, right? All these associations are with them. And so it's not an accident, but also, you know, wild, clearly wild. And so it's not an accident that Onesculus um, is a representation of a demon and that um, she represents this depraved union. However, though, there was some hope for her because according to this text in the Testament of Solomon, she was blessed by Solomon and ordered to hemp, to spin hemp for God. And apparently she's been doing it ever since. So she was domesticated by being turned into a spinner, right? She's spinning hemp. I could do a whole hour on hemp, which is fantastic. But anyway, she's spinning hemp. She was ordered by Solomon. And in doing, 
this spinning, which is women's work. I say that in quotation for those of you not watching. She fit into the category of obedience, control, submission, and work, right? Free labor. And so she's spinning hemp for God. I don't know what God is doing with that hemp, but who knows? Yeah. And so that's what happens. And that was the fate of Honest Gillis. But that was one of the ways in which um, monotheists were able to both degrade Greco-Roman cultures or believers and also control and reassign their stories. Okay. Moving on to Lamia. Oh, no. I forgot about Aristophanes' play of the frauds. One of the, one of the other places where we see an empusa is in Aristophanes' play of the frauds. The short version of the story, because it's a bit of a long story. If you've ever read the frogs, you know it. The short version of the story is that this tale of Dionysus and his slave uh, Santheus, they're going into the underworld and they're there to rescue Euripides you know, because he's done some stuff. And they ask Heracles for some advice and Heracles gives them some advice and they head down into the underworld. So on the way, they're crossing Charon's lake and Xanthius sees this horrible figure of the Empusa. And he says to Dionysus, who's not, who doesn't see it, that this is the most ferocious monster. And he, and he describes the way that she looks right, to Dionysus. And he says, oh, my God, she's changing from a bull to a mule to a beautiful woman, then a dog. And then he goes, well, it looks like her face is on fire. Right. And then, of course, he says that she has one cow leg and one copper leg. So Dionysus, interestingly, is terrified and pleads with Xantius to protect him from the Impusa. And Xanthia does. He tells it to go away and she goes away. So again, very, very fascinating, right? I mean, the story is kind of supposed to be funny and many scholars have said, you know, it's sort of a, a comedic break. And it's when you read it, it's told or it's meant to be told in sort of a comedic way. But it's interesting that, first of all, Dionysus doesn't see her. And second of all, that he's so terrified I know Dionysus is technically a demigod, but he's a god on his own, of his own right, and quite a brilliant deity. Yet he's asking his servant, protect me, protect me from this monstrous woman or monstrous figure. So again, very interesting. There's a lot to be said for the power of frightening women. And when we see someone like Dionysus frightened of her, that really, that really um, emphasizes her power to me. Yep. All right. So now let's move on to Lamia. Lamia is also a tragic female figure. So we're going to look at a couple different sort of incarnations or attributions to Lamia, right? They were often conceived as beautiful, ghostly women. They had voluptuous bodies. They attracted young men. And the one thing that makes a Lamia different than I think an Empusa is that they enjoyed their, the, the flesh and youthful blood and bodies of young men. So I would say that Lamia's are the original vampiric women. In fact, in my experience and research, the very first vampires, such as the Lamias and others, if we go back to Sumer and other Mesopotamian cultures, were all women. And they were all women turned to monsters or women who survived a tragic end or died and were reborn because of a tragedy. So they were all women and they were all interested in the flesh and blood and semen often of um, young men. And so this is how they're portrayed in legend. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to read to you the story of Lamia Corinthia because it's really interesting. She was um, a, a daemon who seduced the youth many posts in the guise of a beautiful woman so that she could feed on his flesh and blood. And she was expelled, we'll talk a little bit about exorcism in a, in a minute, by the prophet Apollonius of Tiana, who, reveal, who revealed that she was a false, that she was an illusion. Okay, so here's a little story. I promised you some story time. 
There was in Corinthus, in Corinth at the time, a man named Demetrius who studied philosophy and who converted to the side of Apollonius of Tiana, so he was a prophet, and more esteemed of his own pupils. The more esteemed of his own pupils, sorry, uh, this man named Demetrius. Among the latter of the pupils was Menippus, a Lycian of 25 years of age, well endowed with good judgment, so this is a smart young man, and a physique so beautifully proportioned that in Mian he resembled a fine and gentlemanly athlete. Yeah, so a hot young dude. Now, this Menippus was supposed by most people to be loved by a foreign woman. So again, a woman outside the community, a woman unknown to the community, okay, who was good looking and extremely dainty, okay, and said that she was rich. Although she was really, as it turned out, not one of these things, but was only so in resemblance. So she only appeared to be this way. For as he was walking all alone along the road towards uh, Kenkaria, he met with a phasma, which is really a phantom or an apparition. And it was this woman who clasped his hand and declared that she had been long in love with him and that she was a Phoenician woman, again, outside of the community, and lived in a suburb of Corinthos. And she mentioned the name of the particular suburb and said, when you reach the place this evening, so this place where I'm from, you will hear my voice as I sing to you and you shall have wine such as you've never before drank and there will be no arrival to disturb you and we two beautiful beings will live together. Eh? This is her seduction. The youth consented to this for although he was in general a strenuous philosopher, so he was quite smart, he was nevertheless susceptible to the tender passion. Yeah, So he was easily seduced by beautiful women. And he visited her in the evening and for the future constantly, constantly sought her company by way of relaxation, for he didn't realize that she was an apparition. Then this Apollonius of Tiana looked over Menippus as a sculptor might do. So this was an older, wiser, less susceptible man to women's beauty. Yeah. And he sketched an outline of the youth and examined him. And having observed his foibles, his flaws, he said, you are a fine youth and are hunted by fine women, hunted, hunted by fine women. But in this case, you are cherishing a serpent, <laughs> a serpent and a serpent cherishes you so much. Yeah. Those of you who have listened to my podcast, understand the meaning of both hunted and serpent, right? And how you see how these things are becoming negative connotations of women. And Menopause expressed his surprise. He says, um, because Menopause is surprised. He says, oh, wow, you, you, uh, you know this about me. For this lady is of a kind. Oh, sorry. No. And when Menopause expressed his surprise that um, Apollonius knows this about him, Menopause, uh, Apollonius added, this lady is not the kind you can marry. This is what he's telling Menopause. Why should you? Do you think she loves you? said Apollonius. Why, yes, for it would be delightful to marry a woman who loves you, says Menippus. Thereupon, Apollonius asked when the wedding was to be. And perhaps tomorrow, says the other, for it brooks no delay. Apollonius therefore waited for the occasion of the wedding breakfast and then presenting himself before the guest who had just arrived, he says, where is this dainty lady at whose instance you have all come? Here she is, says Menippus. And at the same moment, he rose slightly from his seat, blushing. And to which of you belong the silver and gold and all the rest of the decorations of the banquet, banqueting hall, says Apollonius. To the lady, replied the youth, for this is all I have of my own. He points to the philosopher's cloak, which he wore. And Apollonius says, have you heard of the gardens of Tantalus? Tantalus is in the underworld. How they exist and yet do not exist. Yes, they all answered. In the poems of Homer, for we certainly never went down to Hades. As such, replies Apollonius, you must regard this world of ours, for it is not really, but the semblance of reality. And that you may realize the truth of what I say, this fine bride is one of the Lamai. That is to say, these beings whom the many regard as Lamai and Mormolakai, these beings fall in love and they are devoted to the delights of Aphrodite. Let's throw Aphrodite under the bus, but especially to the flesh of human beings. And they decoy with such delights 
those whom they mean to devour in their feasts. And the lady says, seize your ill omen talk and be gone. And she pretended to be disgusted at what she heard. And in fact, she was inclined to rail at philosophers and say that they always talk nonsense. When, however, the goblets of gold and the show of silver were proved as light as air and all fluttered away at, the, at their sight, while the wine bearers and the cooks and all the retinue of servants vanished before the rebukes, rebukes of Apollonius, then the phasma or Lamia pretended to weep and prayed to him not to torture her, nor to compel her to confess what she really was. But Apollonius insisted and would not let her off. And then she admitted that she was an impusa or a vampire and was fattening up Menippus with pleasures before devouring his body. For it was our habit to feed upon young and beautiful bodies because their blood is pure and strong. I have related at length because it was necessary to do so. This is the best known story of Apollonius for many people are aware of it and know that he, that the incident occurred in the center of Hellas. But they've only heard in general in a vague manner that once caught and overcame, Alamia and Corinthus disappeared. And so this is the story of Lamia of Corinthia. So she was basically just fattening up her young man so that he would be nice and plump and delicious when she decided to drink his blood and eat him. Yeah. So they were illusionists, the Lamia. They could use their magic to hide their true forms. They would, of course, shapeshift into beautiful women and select their target. And they would drink their blood after the blood of young men after seduction and feed on their flesh. Now, this is a point that's really interesting because vampiric culture, of course, is the horrifying reaction of men to beautiful women and this idea of being seduced, of being out of control. But there's, again, that sort of aspect that we talked about back in the Lilith podcast uh, at the beginning of our podcast season, where this idea of drinking blood and eating the body of a young man empowers you with their essence. And, you know, just as a side note, it reminds me again of the Christian Eucharist, in which Christians drink the blood of Christ and eat the body of Christ as part of their Eucharist and the part of their communion. And so, as we've talked about with Lilith, there is so much connotation in the case of impuses and lamias and vampires as something that is unnatural or unholy. But the concept of drinking and eating someone's essence remains central in this case to the, to, to, to the Christian religion. Because when you go to church, maybe some of you are not church girls, but for example, when I was a kid and going to church, you ate the little wafer. Well, you'd only drank the wine if we were in the Greek church, but in the Greek Orthodox church and the Catholic church, you don't drink the wine anymore. But um, then you would go back to your uh, seat and you would kneel or whatever, and you would meditate or pray on the, on Jesus entering your body through that process of eating. And this is exactly what the Lamia and the Impusas do. I mean, perhaps their <laughs> intentions are not sacred meditation, you know? So as a Christian, you tell yourself, well, you know, I'm, I, I want to be one with God and therefore I'm ingesting this being that I believe is the son of God. For Impusas and Lamias and other vampiric creatures, they want to in ingest the essence of youth and power. Um, but the idea is the same. You know, it's just the judgment of it that is different. And so I just wanted to briefly touch upon the story of uh, Philinion. So Philinion is, an, again, one of the early, the tragedy of Philinion is one of the early vampiric stories in, in Greek culture and Greco-Roman culture. And it again, it has to do with vampiric consumption. <laughs> vampiric consumption. Uh, Philinion's story is heartbreaking. And it's often said to be the very first vampire story by Greeks, but it's not actually the very first uh, vampire story. Anyways, the tale of her, of Philinion, is an old one. And she comes from uh, Machates or Machates from ancient Rome. It's told by Phlegon of Trellis. It's second century uh, of the common era. The story is reported to have taken place during the uh, reign of Philip II of Macedon. So in about 336 BCE. 
And in this tale, the maiden Filignon is the daughter of Demonstratos and Carito of Amphipolis. She's married to a general in Alexander's army named Craterus, but she dies early. She dies six months after their wedding. And then after her death, she appears in bodily form in the home of her parents, where she consorts for three nights with a young man named Maketis, who was a guest of her parents. When she's finally seen by another member of the household, um, a servant of the household, and her parents discover her, she claims that she has done that what she has done was approved by the will of the gods of the underworld. And her parents should not have interfered with her, having given her, having given her, having given them this explanation, she then dies a second time. And her parents, thinking that maybe this person was an imposter or definitely some type of unnatural incarnation of their daughter, order her tomb to be open and find her body missing. Furthermore, the trinkets that she gave to Maketis, the young man she was seducing during their time together, are identical to those that are, that are buried with her, which of course is also missing from the tomb. So, and while, while hid, the gifts he gave her on those nights are there. So the conclusion there is that Filignon came back to life for some purpose that was never satisfied, seduced this young man, and upon being witnessed, she dies. Uh, some there are some stories that say that they buried her, sorry, they burned her remains. So like the trinkets that was left in the tomb, or anything that they found of hers, they burnt, and then eventually, you know, she never came back. So it's a very interesting story. My favorite part of the story, though, the Philinion, is that she is resurrected, <laughs> right? She is resurrected. So she was buried in a tomb. She's resurrected. Of course, her purpose is to seduce this young man. Okay. Three nights for three nights, three days and three nights. And then her parents or the maid discovers her and then her parents discover her. And then she disappears. They say she dies. They don't know where she went. They go to check the tomb. The tomb is empty. So I don't know how we don't see these connections, these intertwining connections between the concepts, for example, of vampiric drinking and eating of the body and bloody of uh, the blood and body of young men, uh, to vampiric women being resurrected literally from their tombs, and then using that time to seduce or perhaps revive themselves for three nights and three days with the blood and body of young men. So there is a lot of symbolism in vampire lore that combines a multitude of concepts, both in Christianity and in other monotheistic traditions, but also in our own sort of modern traditions, modern Hollywood traditions of horror, of demons, of satanic rituals, of cults, all of that stuff plays an, uh, an incredible role in our, um, in our culture today, especially in the West. And lastly, is it lastly? Well, I have a couple of more. Yeah. Lastly, uh, I want to talk about Queen Lamia. So the Libyan queen, which is a more concrete, shall I say, story in the sense that a uh, more concrete mythological story, which which and by that I mean that there is an organic figure here, an organic figure. So Queen Lamia is this beautiful maiden from this young woman uh, from um, Libya. She's a Libyan queen. She's a great beauty. She's the daughter of Belus. And she it catches the attention of Zeus. So, of course, he falls in love with her and he seduces her and they have children together. And Hera, in her jealousy, kills all of her children, all of Lamia's children. Okay. And then we are told that Lamia, as part of her revenge, her revenge but also her despair, begins to rob other people of their children by eating, devouring, or killing them. And so there's a savage cruelty that she begins to enforce on other mothers, on other people around her, that then changes her appearance, distorts her appearance, um, and she becomes shark-like or reptilian-like. And if you ever Google pictures of Lamia, for example, especially of someone like John Waterhouse, who I have here as an example, or other, you know, classical painters, you will see the Lamia as sort of looking at young men or looking at other people, but she's wrapped in a snake skin. 
And in fact, what's really interesting is you don't see too many depictions, literal depictions of Lamia's eating the children, but this is what she does. And in order to sort of make up for her damage, what Zeus does is Zeus gives her the, the ability to take her eyes out so she can pop them out and put them back in. So she doesn't have to see. Now, there are some stories where um, we're told that Zeus gives her this ability before her children are taken from her. But most scholars agree that he supposedly gives her this ability after. And so if you give her this ability after, I began thinking, like, what does she need to take her eyes out for? Um, is it so that she doesn't see the destruction that she is um, doing to other mothers or other children? Or is it that other people don't look at her? So there's something about the eyes again. There's something about that gaze of the monster that's really fascinating here. And the fact that Zeus gives her the ability to take her eyes out is, is really interesting because, so there's a couple of things interesting here. Of course, the very first one is that Hera is the Punisher, just like we saw with Athena and Medusa. Again, women versus women. And this seems to actually be the theme of my topic today, women versus women, because um, it's still happening, you know, it's still happening. So Athena, you know, supposedly punishes Medusa, though we've talked about how that's probably not likely. And in this case, again, Hera, the jealous wife, punishes um, Lamia, not Zeus, of course, by killing children. Um, so again, there is an, an unnaturalness that we associate here. And then Lamia goes on to perform this very act that Hera performed for her as revenge on others. So an interesting complexities, I think, um, and an interesting indoctrination of women attacking women, of women being jealous and vengeful and negative in every way particularly very beautiful women. So now for the Greeks, they, there was a, there's a really interesting dichotomy because they loved beauty and everything that was aesthetically pleasing, but they also feared it, especially beautiful women. And like I said, one of the things that men fear, and I'm talking about patri under the patriarchy, and that's, of course, not every man, but one of the things that men feared, especially those who controlled and had authority, was that they had no control over themselves, supposedly, in the presence of a beautiful woman. And so that a beautiful woman could use that beauty to take away their control. And that became so ingrained as a fact and a blame on the women, not the man who can't control himself. Yeah. That we still see that today, of course, in rape victims, in assault victims, literally in high schools where young women are told not to wear a skinny strap, a but wear a thick strap or not to wear too tight pants. And the idea is it's this distracting. Every time I hear that, it drives me crazy because first of all, if you're a male teacher and you're saying that's distracting, that disturbs me on a very, sub, a very funda found fundamental level. And if you're a young man as a teenager and you're saying that's distracting, then you haven't been taught how to control yourself. And I remember during, of course, this has been a long feminist movement and a long Me Too movement. There was a man who uh, was part of the protest for the Me Too movement. And he said, I don't get how we teach young men that this is allowed because he said, if I walk into a butcher shop or a burger shop and I'm hungry and they have burgers on the you know, table, I don't take them. If I walk in a bank and I'm broke, and I see people counting money, I don't take it. So I have control of my body. And yet we're supposed to believe that if you see a, a sexy woman or a naked woman in front of you, you just lose all control, right? And I thought, wow, that's a really genius and really wonderful way to put it because it's true. In every other way, we can men and women can control ourselves, but in this particular way, apparently control is problematic. So Again, sorry, a little side rant, but it's, you know, all of this, I think, is embedded in the Lamia and the Impusa stories. And so they're super fascinating. One of the things that's really interesting about the queen, the Libyan um, uh, Lamia, is that she gave birth. She gave birth to the Scylla, of course, we're told, which is another monster that we're going to talk about. Um, and she also gave birth, though, to the Sibylla Herophile, 
or Hierophile, or Hierophile, however you want to say it, which was one of the first prophetesses of Delphi. Okay, so that was the that was the daughter of Zeus and Lamia of this particular Lamia. And Pausanias tells us um, that there's a rock that rises up on the ground at Delphi. And on it, say the Delphians, there stood and chanted the oracles of a woman by the name of Herophile and surnamed Sibylla or Sibyl. And the, firm, the form of Sibylla I found was a, an ancient as any. This is what Pausanias says. The Greeks say that she was the daughter of Zeus by Lamia and also the daughter um, of Poseidon. That by Lamia was the daughter of Poseidon, sorry. That she was the first woman to chant oracles and that the name Sibylla was given Sibla was given to her by the Libyans. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, there's other sort of Sibyllas that are said to be, that, for example, the daughter of Apollo and Lamia. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of associations uh, that are, there's an association between prophetesses or oracles and Lamia as the mother. So Sibyls were prophetesses, obviously, and oracles in ancient Greece. And they prophesize at other holy sites. Um, a symbol at Delphi, for example, is, can be dated as back, back as early as the 11th century BCE. And this is the one that Pausanias is talking about, which is the daughter of the Libyan Lamia. And it appears that she has been one of the single symbols that was there. And there have been some other um, symbols that are maybe more familiar, which is a, a Phrygian one, an Erythrian one, and of course, the Hellas Patini. So by the first century BCE, there were about 10 Sibyls located in Greece, and they prophesied or they were oracles. But this one is interesting because, again, of this Delphic association, because the Lamia has this sort of become this monstrous reptilian creature. And of course, we talked about this, the python um, at Delphi. So there's all this... Um, this interesting figure around the Sibyls. Of course, Sibyls, uh, at least according to Plutarch, were women who would would, would go into these frenzied mouth uttering. Um, they were unadorned, they were unperfumed, and they were said to have been able to live for thousands of years because they were the voice of gods, right? So this is the way that um, Sibyls were perceived. Yeah. And so most of them were not really associated with names, except for this one, which is really fascinating, which of course, Pausanias describes as the first Sibyl to ever be at Delphi. And she is of course the, the daughter of Lamia. So there's some really interesting and in-depth connections between um, the Lamias that are sort of vampiric early creatures, the queen of Libya, which is her named Lamia, which then is seduced by Zeus, which is then turned into a monster, which then has a daughter that is a prophetess of the god at Delphi, right? There's a lot here. There's a lot here to take apart. There's a lot here to consider. One of the interesting aspects is of both Impusas and Lamias is how do you get rid of them and how do you recognize them? So we are told, of course, that someone like Apollonian and other people, uh, you know, philosophers and men can, older men can recognize them. And that's because supposedly they have experience. But one of the ways that you can get rid of an Impusa, for example, is um, by yelling at it and insulting her. So when you're yelling at her and insulting her or hurling abuse and insults at the creature, it will flee into the night screaming and trailing in its wake. And this is where the Striga, the Striga connection comes in. And so the striga is literally in Romanian, it means to scream. And so this is where the, the connection overlaps. So if you yell and scream and insult these impusas, perhaps not the lamias because they're a little sexier, but the impusas, they will run away screaming and yelling. And so actually this idea of the striga is the screaming and yelling. So when you walk, you know, when you go into a forest or you go into a, a, a natural environment and you hear the birds screaming and the, and that kind of sound. So this led to the superstition that there were women creatures in the forest screaming. And sometimes uh, they shape-shifted into owls because um, then there's this association with owls and wisdom and knowledge and night, uh, night creatures and all that kind of stuff. So the striga has become this um, shape-shifting creature that screams, right? That is a woman screaming, but that she changes shape. And that has a lot to do with this predating of the impusa running away screaming 
when you yell at her. Yeah. And then there may be also connection to harpies and, and other female creatures, which we'll talk about in future podcasts. Yeah. But that's how you get rid of an Anpusa is uh, by insulting and hurling insults at her. So I wanted to close a little bit with some modern interpretations. And I found two that I absolutely love and that I promised that I would speak to you about. So the very first one you may be familiar with, of course, um, is the um, the two Impusas or the Impusas in the Rick Riordan, um, uh, blah, 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 blah. Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson and the Olympian series. And they appear, the first appear in the Battle of the Labyrinth. And they're seen as uh, servants of Hecate, who by that time had joined the Titan army. And so I've shown you here, but you can Google it if you're just listening to me, this uh, comic book version of the two in Pusai. And it is exactly, you know, Rick Riordan literally just looked up uh, in Pusa, and it is exactly a depiction. So here you have two figures, two women uh, with a donkey leg and a metal leg, which looks cool. They're both cheerleaders and the white. So there's a, uh, there's two sort of a white and a woman of color. Uh, there are the white woman has the white Empusa has fire for her hair. Yeah. And so there's these two figures that are fighting Percy Jackson and screaming. And when they open their mouth to scream, they have sharpened vampiric teeth or uh, shark teeth almost, right? So there's a bit of a combination there of symbolism, but it's, it's pretty cool to be honest. Um, not that I like cheerleading bullies at all, but it looks pretty cool. Um, so Rick Riordan really makes, uh, use of all of the symbolism around and Pusai and, uh, use them in that battle of, uh, the labyrinth. Yeah. Now, the other one that I really liked and I read, which was really fun is a, a fantasy, uh, series by Carrie Arthur. I don't know if you know who Carrie Arthur is. She's really wonderful. So if you don't know who she is, please look her up and find her books. And in her book, Wicked Wings, in which her, her heroine, Lizzie, is a witch who also solves crime. It's really fun. And a redheaded witch, which is really fascinating. Anyway, that's a longer story. But there is an Impusa as the villain in this text. And in this text, the Impusa, again, embodies everything that we've just talked about, um, that she's female, that she's horrendous, but especially that she eats people, right? So the mystery of this novel. So this is a series uh, in which this heroine solves crime, which is really fantastic with her best friend and her boyfriend. And um, in this particular series, the villain or the, the killer is this Impusa figure. And so they, they, it takes them some time to figure out what she is, what kind of monster she is, but they find all of these eaten bodies. Yeah. And so, and I think in this one, she, they eat the heart first or they eat the heart only. Don't quote me. I can't remember exactly because I read a lot of fantasy fiction, but it's, it's really great. Uh, again, I mean, authors will use sensational stories and that's perfectly fine. And I think it's perfectly wonderful in the way that we at least learn about these figures. But I also think it's important then that we talk about these figures in a way that I think it's important that we talk about villainesses or villains, but particularly villainesses and discuss what makes them monstrous, what makes us decide they're monstrous, and all of the symbols and sort of in indoctrination that has been passed down to us. And so I think in our modern day, we are feeling more sympathetic towards villains. Perhaps we understand them a bit more now than we ever have in the last 2000 years. And I'm, I'm, encouraged by that because there is a lot more to so-called villains than we see. So that is a good thing. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm glad that you've joined me in this podcast. I'm, and if you've enjoyed it, I hope that you listen to the others and the ones that are upcoming. I'm not sure what we're doing next week. We might be doing Medea or Circe or we'll see. I have a list. <laughs> 
Um, so thank you so much for joining me. And I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you've enjoyed it, please share and subscribe and like and do all of the things that algorithms like. Um, and follow me on all the social media that you might enjoy. Again, for the same sort of purpose of now we are all. Uh, what's the word? Servants in a way to algorithms. Yeah. Um, I keep holding out, you know, because I want to just do my own thing and hope that people enjoy it and follow and just be random about it. Um, <laughs> but my marketing uh, friends would tell me, what are you doing? You know, you got to market yourself properly. Anyways, uh, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave any comments, suggestions, thoughts, anything in the comments section that you like, that you enjoy, that you might want to hear more about and um, have the best weekend ever. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Again, my name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. You can find me anywhere under Artemis Expert. And feel free to join my book club if you're interested in reading some more about goddess culture. Yeah. Thank you so much and see you all later.